20, and we talked about the story of Eutychus. Remember Eutychus? If you don't remember the story, Eutychus is the boy who fell asleep during Paul's sermon, which at that particular sermon went on until past midnight, and he nodded off while sitting in a third floor window, and he fell out, and he died. Now, Paul raised him from the dead, and then he went on preaching until morning. Now, I'm not telling you that now, so you'll be prepared for a really long sermon. We won't be here till midnight or till tomorrow morning. But one of the things that we talked about in the group Wednesday night was how sometimes we must deal with the challenge of staying awake in church. I found this cute little cartoon. The bottom says, it's a good sign the pastor caught you napping during his sermon when he says, see us next Sunday, Eutychus. This was Paul preaching when Eutychus fell asleep, so I rather doubt that it was boring. So on the one hand, there's the recognition that there could be a lot of reasons why you might struggle to stay awake, and it doesn't necessarily mean that the sermon is boring. But it occurred to me that this particular topic that we're going to study this week, and uh, last week's topic, going to be concluding this week, this is kind of a deeply theological topic, and it might seem to some of the less holy among you, maybe a little bit boring. So in an effort to help all of you stay awake today, I offer as a public service this very short list of things to do when you're bored in church. First thing, well, we're a little late for this, but you can do it for next week. You can pass a note to Jim, the worship leader, and ask if he takes requests. You could yawn and see if the yawn is really contagious. You know, you've heard that, right? You've heard that yawns are contagious? Let's just see if that works. You could slap your neighbor, and you could see if they turn the other cheek, and if they don't, raise your hand and let me know about it. You could raise your hand right in the middle of the sermon and ask permission to go to the restroom. Please don't do that. (laughs) Gordon, Gordon, get out of here now. (laughs) You could whip out a hanky and blow your nose and then vary the pressure that's exerted on your nostrils and trumpet out a rendition of of your favorite hymn. You could do that. Or you could twiddle your thumbs, or you could twiddle your neighbor's thumbs. These are things that kind of help you stay awake during the sermon if you have problems. I hope these help, and I also hope that you don't need to use some of these very practical ideas. Now, last week, we began our two-part look at one of the most important teachings of our faith. The Trinity, despite being quite challenging to our finite minds, is nevertheless a doctrine that the early church strongly defended. We learned that analogies can be useful and funny, like the one that went, she grew on him like he was a colony of E. coli and he was room temperature Canadian beef. Got a bigger laugh last week. We also learned that analogies of God always break down at some point, even when they're useful to some degree, because God is absolutely unique. We learned that some analogies of the Trinity can also lead to false doctrine if they're, taken, if they're taken at face value and not examined carefully. But we also learned that we do, in fact, see reflections of the Trinity all around us. We see it in things like the different roles that teammates play on sports teams. We see it in the way that a symphony combines diverse instruments playing uh, into a unified and sometimes a very beautiful sound. Some of these reflections of the Trinity help us begin to understand this doctrine because unity and diversity are at the heart of the Trinity. We began to explore what the Trinity is 
and we also began to explore what the Trinity isn't. We began to look at the many different ways people have described the Trinity, and we looked at some very specific definitions that begin to open up this doctrine to us some, and we'll look at a few more here in a moment. Perhaps one of the most important things I think that we learned last week was that as believers in Christ, we already know the Trinity by experience. Whether we can articulate the doctrine well or not, or whether we know that we know it or not. We know it because God the Father has sent God the Son to die in our place because we're not able to pay the price for our own sin. We know it because God the Holy Spirit has drawn us to Christ and has sealed us for the day of redemption. And He lives inside us, enabling us to call God Abba, Father. We know the Trinity because we see it and we experience it most clearly in the process of redemption. Now, the New Testament does not present a systematic presentation of the Trinity. The scattered segments from various writers that appear throughout the New Testament reflect a seemingly accepted understanding that exists without a full-length discussion. It's embedded in the framework of the Christian experience and simply assumed as true. The New Testament writers focus on statements drawn from the obvious existence of Trinitarian experience as opposed to a detailed exposition. Near the end of last week's message, we looked at a diagram which is helpful in highlighting the key aspects of the important biblical teaching of the Trinity. It's on the cover of your bulletin, too, for your reference. So the doctrine of the Trinity tells us this. There is one eternal being, God. This being is indivisible and infinite. This one being is shared by three co-equal, co-eternal persons. Co-equal essentially tells us that all three persons of the Trinity are completely God. There's not each a 33% part of God. Co-eternal means that this one being, this one God, has always existed in the form of three persons from before the beginning of time in eternity past. This reality taught in Scripture is a good place for us to pause and consider the difference between the terms being and person. Understanding how words are meant is always important in pretty much any kind of discussion, whether you're discussing theology or many other things. But there may not be a doctrine where understanding the meaning of the words you're using and explaining those carefully is more important, more critical for us to understand than when we're talking about the Trinity. It would be a clear contradiction to say that there are three beings within one being or three persons within one person. But think of it this way. We recognize the difference between being and person every day. We know, we can know, we do know what something is while also knowing that there can be individual distinctions within a classification. For example, we speak of the being of a man or a woman, a human being, right? But a rock has being too, so does a cat or a dog or a bird. However, we also realize that there are personal attributes unique to human beings. When we talk about someone, we realize that when we're talking about that someone, there's both a what and a who. Dave Troutman is a what? He's a human being. But Dave is also a unique person. He's Dave. No one else is this particular Dave. 
What's personality? It's the ability to have emotion. It's the ability to express yourself either verbally or with action or both. Personality is also understanding, at least to some degree. Uh, understanding who and what you are and who and what you are not. So related to the Trinity, what we're saying here is that this one eternal being of God is shared fully and completely by three persons. Now last week in our Knights of the Square Table meeting, that's the meeting that uh, Jim Garrett and Dave Troutman and I have with some of the young men in our church every other week, Kirk, who's part of that group, noted that the one human being named Kirk has three different personalities, if you will, in his three major roles in life. One is that he's Kirk, the responsible worker at his job. Another is that he's Kirk, the husband of Hanya. And another one is that he's Kirk, the father of Marcos and Isa. Now, it's very important that we remember that these analogies cannot be used as an exact comparison because God is unique. It's a mistake to carry any human-based analogy of the Trinity too far. But we use this one to illustrate as just an incomplete and imperfect reflection rather than a firm analogy. This thing is like this thing of some ideas of the Trinity. And we can only illustrate some. We can't illustrate everything about the Trinity. About the Trinity, we are saying that this one eternal infinite being of God is shared fully and completely by three persons. And if I'm repeating myself, that's for a reason. We want to get this, okay? These words are important. The one what is God, and there's only one. The three who's are the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Three unique persons within the one and only God. Also, we have to remember that it's sometimes important for us to explain when we're discussing the Trinity what we are not saying. And this is where our example is only a reflection, and it breaks down and proves inadequate to fully explain this doctrine. Because while we can say that Kirk is the employee, Kirk is the father, Kirk is the husband, we're not saying about the Trinity that the Father is the Son, or the Son is the Spirit, or that the Spirit is the Father, like this diagram makes clear. Kirk the husband cannot fully separate that person from Kirk the father. He's one human being, but he's also still just one person. Though these aspects of Kirk's life reflect three different roles he fills as that one person. But God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are not each other. You remember last week we quoted James White, who wrote the book The Forgotten Trinity, quoting him again. It's very common for people to misunderstand the doctrine as to mean that we are saying Jesus is the Father. The doctrine of the Trinity does not in any way say this. Now here's another way to summarize the doctrine, and think of your uh, diagram here, because this is illustrated by this. There's only one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not the Father. We see these things illustrated, again, in the diagram that's on the front of your bulletin and what we had on the screen just a moment ago. They're critically important in our understanding of the Trinity. And undermining or outright denying any of these individual statements about the Trinity can lead to all kinds of problems. Throughout the history of the church, from its earliest days, all of the creeds, 
all of the big theological words, all of the philosophical apologetics that the early church did were about one very important thing. They were about protecting each one of these statements that we just looked at without denying any of the other statements that we looked at. What we see in church history is what we call creeds, arrived at by an incredibly meticulous process of wrestling with the meaning of and explaining these ideas, even by parsing words. Now, unfortunately, though parsing words is kind of the weasel excuse for politicians these days as we look at the news, in this case it was necessary because, as we've noted, this can and often is a difficult doctrine for us to grasp. So words and how you define and use those words are very important. There's some critics of the doctrine of the Trinity have said essentially that the early church councils made up the doctrine of the Trinity and that the Trinity wasn't believed in or it wasn't taught by the early church. This is not a true understanding of the early church councils. These councils created these creeds using some language, as we noted last week, that's not in the Bible. Words like Trinity, for example, to defend and to define the doctrine that the church already believed, as well as to limit this doctrine to what Scripture does teach and assume, in this case, the essential doctrine of the Trinity. The Athanasian Creed puts it this way. Now, this is the Catholic faith. Now, let me say that this is small c Catholic, not Roman Catholic, meaning in this context the universal Christian faith, although Roman Catholics would affirm what we're about to see here in the Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. For the person of the Father is a distinct person. The person of the Son is another, and that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Now there are two key words here. The first one is essence. Kevin DeYoung wrote that when you read essence, you should think godness. All three persons of the Trinity share the same godness. One is not more God than another. None is more essentially divine than the rest. He goes on to say that when we read persons, we should think this. We should think a person's a particular individual distinct from the others. This truth about the Trinity is why the illustration about Kirk a few minutes ago is just a reflection of the Trinity and not a complete and perfect analogy. These kinds of terms were used by those creating the creeds and by theologians because it's pretty important to express the relationship of the three beings that are equally and uniquely God, but not three gods. That's why we use language like being and essence and persons. In doing so, we're trying to be true to what Scripture teaches us, namely that there is an indivisibility and a unity of God, one God, even though Father, Son, and Holy Spirit can all rightly be called divinity. It's critical to note that these three persons are not three gods. That's a heresy, and it's called polytheism. In this case, maybe more specifically, tritheism. We'll look 
at how this has manifested itself in errors in history here in a moment. So there's three great ecumenical creeds. We've heard of some of them. We just quoted the Athanasian Creed. There's the Apostles' Creed. There's the Nicene Creed. All of these creeds are structured around our three-in-one God, and they all highlight the essential importance of Trinitarian theology. Augustine once commented about the Trinity. He said, in no other subject is error more dangerous or inquiry more laborious or the discovery of truth more profitable. That's what I hope we can get at today as we discover the truth about the Trinity, that it would be profitable to us spiritually. So the early church believed this doctrine. Indeed, they had experienced the reality of the doctrine of the Trinity, having seen God the Son, having seen the coming of the Holy Spirit, having heard the voice of God the Father, all eyewitness experiences recounted in the Gospels and in Acts. But as the Gospel spread beyond those early eyewitnesses, the inevitable confusion began to set in. And some began to twist elements of the Trinity into falsehood and heresy. Probably the first guy we see in history is a man in the third century. His name was Sibelius, and he was the first one who got it wrong when he described the Godhead in terms of modes. His idea affirmed the unity of God, but denied the distinct persons of the Trinity. It came to be called Sibelianism or modalism because Sibelius taught that the members of the Trinity existed only one mode at a time as God did certain things in history. For instance, modern-day modalists believe that God manifests himself as father only when he is creating and giving the law, as son only in redemption, and as the spirit only in the church age. This is wrong because Scripture teaches, as we've noted, that God is father, God is Son and Holy Spirit all at the same time in eternity past, present, and eternity future. This is perhaps one of the most difficult of the heresies related to the Trinity because, again, you have to define terms to be very precise here. That makes it challenging because modalists can often sound so much like believers with an orthodox and historical understanding of the Trinity until you begin to dig a little deeper and begin to see what they're saying when they use certain terms. What's more, most of their other beliefs would line up with what we would say are orthodox Christian beliefs. Modern-day modalists, to give you some examples, include oneness Pentecostals. You might have heard, to, heard of them as Jesus only. Uh, people like T.D. Jakes and the singers Phillips, Craig, and Dean. These are modalists. Modalists describe the action of the Trinity as three manifestations. That's the word they use. They say the three manifestations of God, not as three persons. That's why we took the time to define terms here. We're talking persons. We're not talking manifestations. Three manifestations of God in three different times. But remember what we've learned here so far. Words mean something. The Trinity is one God, three persons, co-eternal, co-existent, or eternally co-existent. Anything less than this denies the biblical teaching about the Trinity. One of the most fundamental ways some misunderstand the doctrine of the Trinity is something we've already mentioned. And it's kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of the many false doctrines that have arisen about the Trinity. Whereas modalists deny the personhood of the three members of the Godhead, and they're doing this in defense of the oneness of God, the other end of the spectrum 
misunderstands the Trinity as three gods. This is polytheism, or as we noted earlier, maybe more specifically, tritheism. This overemphasizes the distinction between the three persons of the Trinity and ends up with three gods, little g gods, but there are still three gods. This is essentially what Mormons believe. Of course, Mormons also believe that Jesus is a spirit child of God, just like you and I are spirit children of God. And Mormon belief also includes the idea that we can all become gods. Mormons do not believe in the Trinity. They will talk about the unity of the three personages, but the unity is a relational unity in purpose and mind, not a unity of essence. Again, we're defining terms here. We have to be very careful with how we use these words. The, the three separate beings of the Godhead in Mormonism are three distinct gods. Jesus was born of the Father just like all spirit children. God is his Father in the same way he is Father to us all. Whatever immortality or godhood Jesus possesses, they are inherited attributes and powers. He does not share the same eternal nature as the Father. Jesus may be divine, but his is a derivative divinity. As one Mormon theologian puts it, Jesus is God the second, the Redeemer. Both tritheism and modalism deny the biblical balance between the one being, one essence of God, his eternal existence in three persons. Another error related to the Trinity is to deny the deity of God the Son, Jesus, and to deny the deity of the Holy Spirit. There was a man named Arius. He essentially started this idea. This heresy includes the idea that the Son and the Spirit are created beings. Arius taught that Jesus was, be was a being created by God, higher than man, but less than God. This idea has also been called subordinationism. This idea, as well as the others, was challenged by Athanasius. It was challenged by the Nicene Creed in uh, AD 325. And the council clarified the position of Jesus as this, of the exact same substance as the Father. Modern-day proponents of this heresy include Jehovah's Witnesses. That would be the easiest one to identify. They deny the deity of Christ. Here's another diagram that might help you understand the three main heresies growing from a misrepresentation or a misunderstanding of the Trinity. The three sides of this triangle here illustrate the three biblical doctrines which help us define the Trinity. We have one God, monotheism. We have this one God in three separate persons. And we see that these three persons are all equally and completely God. And if we deny any one of these three teachings about the Trinity, the other two sides point to the inevitable result of this denial. So take a look at that here for just a second. And I'm going to quote author and apologist James White, whose book, The Forgotten Trinity, we mentioned last week. He says, if one denies that there are three persons, one is left with the two sides of full equality in one God. And this results in the oneness teaching of the United Pentecostal Church and others. If one denies full equality, one is left with subordinationism, as seen in Jehovah's Witnesses and the Way International, etc. And if one denies one God, one is left with polytheism, the belief 
in many gods, as clearly seen in the Mormon church, the most polytheistic religion I have encountered, writes James White. So we spent the better part of two messages outlining what the Trinity is and what it isn't and what the words mean. We've seen how a misunderstanding of this doctrine can lead to false doctrine and heresy. But let me ask this as we begin to near our conclusion here this morning. Who cares? Who cares? More specifically, why should we care? Aren't these just theological questions? Aren't we nitpicking here? Like how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? What does this doctrine mean to us today in the here and now? Well, let me note this first. Any doctrine and theology, any study of these things, these things are never just dry exercises in discussion or debate. Now, they may challenge us to think a little bit, and that's a good thing. But taking a closer look at the important teachings of our faith can and should be life-giving because they reveal to us our great God, a God who's not like us, a God who's holy, a God who's so far beyond our complete understanding that any attempt to grow in understanding him has got to be helpful, if only to know him better as he reveals himself to us. As we noted last week, our heart's desire is to worship him in truth. That is, to worship him as he reveals himself and not as we think he should be or we might want him to be. So a true and accurate knowledge of the Trinity is a blessing all by itself. And though we've noted that we can't find a place in the Old or New Testament where someone wrote this, now this is the doctrine of the Trinity, A, B, C, we don't see that. It's also true that the Trinity is assumed and referenced in more places in Scripture than we can possibly mention even in a two-part sermon. Last week we looked at the rich Trinitarian imagery in the Gospel of John, chapter 1. We also saw the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all active in the baptism of Jesus. We also see the Trinity clearly in the Great Commission itself in Matthew 28, 19. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. If as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ we want to be transformed into his image, we can't help but see the importance of the Trinity. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 tells us that we've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, there's one person, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, there's another, for obedience to Jesus Christ, there's three, and sprinkling by his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. There's our one God in three persons, having all played a part in redemption and sanctification and that ongoing transformational change that God desires to do in each of us after we've come to receive his amazing grace. A practical implication of the Trinity is that it makes a definitive revelation of God possible. Think about it. We read this last week in John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, referring clearly to Jesus here, has made him known. So the reality of the Trinity enables us to see God through the person of Jesus. 
excuse me, we can see him in a way that we could not see him before the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What's more, the Trinity makes the atonement possible. Our redemption was accomplished through the activity of each person of the Trinity. Their actions were distinct from one another, but unified in God's ultimate purpose of redemption for us. We read in Hebrews 9.14, how much more will the blood of Christ, listen for the persons of the Trinity as I read this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here's another important reason that the Trinity, uh, another reason the Trinity is important to us today. Because God is triune, he has eternally been personal and relational in his own being. This is important, so think about this for a second. As such, the Trinity provides the ultimate model for relationships within the body of Christ. We worship a triune God who is in constant and eternal relationship with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now here at TCF, even though there are many things that we do well and many things we can and hope to do better, one thing we do well here at TCF is community and relationships. And within our Christian understanding of the Trinity, community and relationships are reflections or expressions of the love of God and the Trinity. Now think about this for a second. It is only with a Trinitarian God that love can be an eternal attribute of God. Without a plurality of persons in the Godhead, we would be forced to think that God created humans so that he might show love and know love, thereby making love a created thing and God a needy deity. But with a biblical understanding of the Trinity, we can say that God did not create in order to be loved, but rather created out of the overflow of the perfect love that had always existed among Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who live in perfect and mutual relationship and delight. Isn't that an amazing, wonderful thing to think about? What a wonderful thing that as followers of Christ, we can reflect in our relationships with one another the love of God that has existed for eternity. Perhaps the most important reason we should think about this doctrine and we should care about it is something we already touched on last week. We've been reminded of it a little bit in today's message. The Trinity matters because it's revealed to us in the very action of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in saving us, in our redemption. The only reason, the only reason we are sitting here together this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ is because we know who God is by what he has done to bring us to himself. He's the Father, loving his people and sending the Son. He's the Son, loving us and giving himself in our place. He's the Spirit, entering into our lives and conforming us to the image of Christ. The disciples were indeed experiential Trinitarians. They had walked with the Son, heard the Father speak from glory, and were now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The disciples weren't the only experiential Trinitarians. So are we here today as followers of Christ. So are we here today. 
I hope that understanding the Trinity may be a little bit more than we did just a few weeks ago will energize our prayers. I hope it will energize our kingdom service. And more than anything, I hope it will deepen our love for this amazing God that we serve. I want to close with Paul's Trinitarian blessing. It's a good way to finish this series. This is a blessing that Paul gave to the Corinthians church, even as he affirms within this blessing our Trinitarian understanding of our great God. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Dear Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your revelation of who you are in the Trinity. We're thankful, Father, that we can see so clearly in Scripture in so many different ways this reflection of the Trinity so, so demonstrated, Father. We see it in our lives. We see it in other things. But, Lord, we see it so clearly in Scripture that you are one God in three persons. And in those three persons, we can experience you in a very real way. We thank you that you are God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We thank you that God the Father had so much love that he sent God the Son to die for us. God the Holy Spirit to seal us for the day of redemption and to draw us to God the Son in his saving grace. We're grateful for these things, Father. Help us to let these things rumble around in our minds, Lord, and consider these things more fully. May they truly have an energizing effect in our prayer life. May they truly have an energizing effect, Father, in all of our service for the kingdom of God. And may they truly help us to love you more, Father, and love you in truth as you revealed yourself to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And giving a, a clear understanding of the Trinity. Let's stand. Father, I ask that each of us, Lord, would not be um, confused. But Lord, you would make clearly what was shared today. The character of God through the Trinity. I pray, Father, as each of us goes to our workplace, Lord, the tasks that you have assigned each of us, that we would be a reflection of your glory and your love for mankind. Thank you, Lord, that we can come to you, come to your throne. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, whom we pray these things. Amen. As we close, just want to remind you to sign up for the 12-hour prayer outside. Those of you who have artwork to see me and uh, if you don't have any today, please bring it here by Tuesday. Thank you. We're dismissed.